As Jesus brings his sermon about the end times to a close, he uses seven parables to instruct us how to live in light of his return. These seven parables begin with the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree parable teaches that God is in absolute control of history and has a definite unchanging plan for humanity. The two men and the two women, the thief in the night and the good and evil slave parables, teach us as believers to be ready and alert for Jesus' return, mindful of our behavior in light of that, faithful and wise in performing those duties that God has entrusted to us. The ten virgins parable teaches the importance of possessing the Holy Spirit. And the hidden talents parable teaches us as believers to prudently use what God has entrusted us for His glory. Now primarily these instructions are for the generation living at the time of Jesus' return. However, they're also beneficial to you and I as believers in what we call the church age awaiting the rapture. As we think about the rapture of the church, that great and glorious day when Christ comes in the air and shouts and the last trump is blown and we are gathered into His presence, at the rapture, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul reveals in Romans 14 verses 10 to 12, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul also adds in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You see, at the judgment seat of Christ, which occurs right with the rapture, at that moment we are going to stand before Judge Jesus. And he is going to examine every work that you and I have done as believers to determine whether we did it for Him, for good, or whether we did it for ourselves, for bad. And those whose works were done for Jesus, any work that you've done for Jesus is going to be rewarded. But any work that you have done for yourself, for your own glory, for your own self-satisfaction, that's going to suffer loss. Paul shares in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful, each person must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's our foundation. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. He describes your work here either as gold, silver, and precious st stones, or your work is wood, hay, and straw. For the day is coming when it will show because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. And if any person's work which he has built on that foundation remains, he'll receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Understand here, any work done for Jesus, for his honor, for his glory, is equivalent to the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. Works done for your own satisfaction, your own self-glory, etc., that's the wood, hay, and straw. That's going to be burned up. Again, you're not going to lose salvation, but you might go into eternity with no rewards for Jesus. Now, believer, while your works will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, let us note what will not be judged. Your works are judged, but you will not be judged for regarding your salvation. 
Your salvation, my salvation is secured in God because He is the source of salvation and He promises to complete what He began. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will complete it, perfect it, until the day of Jesus Christ. So when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He's not going to judge whether or not we're saved. The fact that you're there means you are saved. The other side of this is this. We will not be judged regarding sin. Our sins will not be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Our works will, but not our sins. You see, Jesus dealt with the issue of sin on the cross. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for our sins once for all time. That is, Christ accomplished atonement, He provided a covering, He covered your sins and mine. And so when you and I repent of our sin and believe the gospel, Christ's atonement is applied to our lives. Our sins are not only forgiven, our sins are forgotten. Paul adds in Colossians 2, 13-14, When you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together in Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What he says there is, every sin you and I have ever committed, it's all written down. It's all, every decree of sin is all written down. It's hostile. It's against us. It's not in our favor. But Jesus took that, took the, those volumes of sin, and he nailed it, to his cross. He's not going to bring it up anymore. And that is an act of grace. But knowing that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Knowing that our, the things we do. Whether they're for ourselves or for the Lord. Are going to be judged. That should cause us to want to serve the Lord faithfully. In James 2.12. Uh, Jesus half brother warns us. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. That is going to be the standard by which he is going to judge our works. He's going to take the law and he's going to take everything that we have done in service to him. Now again, let's, let's be honest to hear that in my service, in your service to him, not everything we've done has always been for his glory. Sometimes we've done it because we've done it for ourselves. Okay. Well, guess what? He's going to take his law and he's going to compare everything we've done. To that standard. That's going to be the standard that he's going to use for judgment. So, believer, let me ask you how are you presently doing with the resources, with the talents, with the gifts that God has given you to use? Do you even know what they are? Okay. I mean, if, really, if we're going to ask, what are you doing with them? Well, let's ask first and foremost to even know what they are. And if you do, how are you doing with them? Are you using them for His honor and His glory? Because how you're doing and using them was going to determine what rewards you're going to bring into eternity. No genuine believer, again, let's praise God here, no genuine believer will lose their salvation at the judgment seat of Christ, but we will lose rewards. Now, following the rapture of the church, the tribulation begins. It's going to last seven years. And during that time, God is going to graciously again provide humanity with an opportunity to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And it's going to be evident that from his final sermon here in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus makes it clear that many Jews are going to repent, believe the gospel, receive Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their Savior. But sadly, many more are going to reject him. Thirty days after his return, Jesus judges the regenerated and unregenerate Jewish people. We see in the good, good and evil slaves, in the ten virgins, and the hidden talents, how the regenerated Jews are going to be welcomed into the kingdom. But we also saw in those three parables how the unregenerate Jews are going to be cast into hell and ultimately the lake of fire. Now the one question that has kept coming up is what of the Gentiles? Obviously, there's going to be Gentiles in the tribulation. In fact, the tribulation period, according to Luke 24, is to bring the times of the Gentiles to an end. 
So are there going to be any Gentiles saved during the tribulation? Well, before closing the sermon, Jesus provides one last parable. The sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And he's going to answer these questions. He's going to, in this parable, reveal the eternal destiny of the Gentiles. Now, the sheep and goats parable begins in verse 31 with the appearance of the Son of Man. The appearance of the Son of Man. Let's read verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Notice Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes. Who is the Son of Man? Well, the Son of Man is a reference to Jesus. Jesus uses that term to refer to Himself. We see this term first used in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, 93 times... Ezekiel is referred to as a son of man. In other words, it implies, denotes Ezekiel's humanity. So when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, he's emphasizing his what? His humanity. When the God-man comes. But I want to think about that title, son of man, a little more. Because it not only denotes his humanity, but it emphasizes his humility. The Son of Man title emphasizes his humility. In Luke 9.58, Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says in Matthew 11.19, the Son of Man was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he associated with the lowly of society. In his humility, Jesus says in Matthew 17.12, that the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Additionally, the Son of Man title emphasizes not only his humanity and his humility, but it also emphasizes his deity. Jesus says in Matthew 9, 6, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You know, forgiveness of sins, of human sin, is a divine prerogative. He says in Mark 2 and verse 28 that the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord. He's Kyrios. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Jesus here says the Son of Man is Yahweh. And as such, the Sabbath belongs to Him. In Matthew 26 and verse 64, quoting Daniel 7.13, Jesus says that He is the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. And that power being God Himself, the Father. Again, Jesus says when the Son of Man comes. When, Hotan, a temporal marker there, denoting the timing of his return. Now, if we've missed this, you got one more opportunity to grab on to the fact of the timing of Jesus' return. In Matthew 24, 29 to 30, Jesus says, immediately after, immediately after, the tribulation of those days, they will see the Son of Man coming on the, on the clouds in the sky with great power and glory. So the events of this parable occur after, immediately after the tribulation. Notice how the Son of Man returns. Jesus says that He comes in His glory. Doxa, the Shekinah glory of the Godhead. What is that? That is the physical manifestation of God's goodness in the form of visible light, often appearing as fire. I mean, when the Shekinah glory appeared in Exodus, it, it led them about through the wilderness as a what? A pillar of fire. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5 says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. Isaiah 60 and verse 2 says, Behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Remember that against the blackness of, of complete darkness, darkness that will envelope the entire world at the same time, no one will miss the brilliance of his return in blazing glory. And also see here who accompanies the Son of Man when he returns. Jesus says, all the angels with him. The word angels, angelos, refers to those supernatural beings that God created to worship and serve Him. In Hebrews 12 verse 22, Paul says that in heaven there are myriads of angels. 
Myriads, murias, is an innumerable number. Jesus does not come with some of his angels. He comes with all, with every angel. In other words, when he returns, he is coming with an innumerable number of angels. Back in Matthew 24, 31, Jesus said that he is going, when he comes, he's going to send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they're going to gather together his elect. He made similar statements in the parables back of Matthew 13, 36 to 43, and 47 to 50. You'll recall in those parables that at the end of the present age, Jesus has said he will send forth his angels to gather the righteous into his kingdom, but the unrighteous into hell. And then notice this, following his return, Jesus says he will sit on his glorious throne. The word throne, Greek word thronos, very easy Greek word to remember, throne, thronos, refers to the seat of the king. It's a symbol of authority. That Jesus sits upon the throne denotes he establishes his kingdom and reigns as king. Which is foretold in Isaiah 9, 7 and Daniel 7, 13, 14. Listen to the words of Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and what? Forevermore. Daniel seven thirteen to 14 says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All the peoples, all the nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now friends, if there's any doubt in your mind about who the one is sitting upon the throne as king, consider the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary. He said in Luke 1, 31-33, Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb, you're going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, he will be called the Son of the Most Highest, and the Lord God is going to give to him the throne of his father David, and he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now the sheep and goats parable continues in verses 32 to 33, with the assembling of the nations. The assembling of the nations. Verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So Jesus establishes himself as king. And notice what happens when he does that. All the nations will be gathered before him. Now, who are the nations? Well, the word here is ethnos. It refers to the Gentiles. All the Gentiles are going to be gathered before him. Now, up to this point, his focus has been on the Jewish people. But now he shifts gears and focuses on the Gentiles. And when Jesus returns, the Gentiles are going to realize that there is only one God, and that God is the God of Israel. Notice they're going to be gathered will be gathered. It's the Greek verb synago. It's the word from which we derive the term synagogue, which is a gathering or an assembly. Well, here the verb synago means to assemble or collect people into one place. All the Gentiles, every Gentile, that word pos means every. Not one will be left behind. Every Gentile is going to be collected and assembled before Jesus the King for judgment. Remember the parable of Matthew 13, the dragnet? Verse 47 to 49, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now let's review some things that we know already. We know, based on Revelation 12 and verse 6, when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, that it will be 1260 days after the abomination of desolation. Okay, that's the midpoint of the tribulation. So 1260 days after that event, 
Jesus returns. We also know, based on Daniel 12, 10, and 11, that 1290 days after the abomination of desolation, that would be 1260 plus 30 more days, after or 30 days after Jesus' return, the Jewish people are going to be gathered and judged. Okay, So we have a time frame for his return. We have a time frame for the judgment of Jewish people. But when does Jesus judge the Gentiles? Well, if you go to Daniel chapter 12 and go down to verse 13, notice what it says. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and makes it to, or attains to, the 1,335 days. 1,335 days. Now, if you compare that 1,335 days to the 1,260 days, or the 1,290 days, what you're going to see here is that 75 days after Jesus returns. Or put it this way, 45 days after he judges Israel. Christ, Jesus is going to judge the Gentiles. Okay? So Jesus returns 1260 days after the abomination. 30 days later, or 1290 days, he judges the Jews. And then 45 days after that, or 75 days after his return, he judges the Gentiles. Now what's impressive here is not that Jesus judges the Gentiles, but that out of grace, he has given them 75 days after his return, after they see him coming in the clouds, to receive him as their Lord and Savior. That's grace, folks. He gives them more time than the Jewish people. Now, folks, the gathering of the Gentiles for judgments foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yahweh announces in Isaiah 66, 18, I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations, all Gentiles, and they shall come to see my glory. In Joel 4 and verse 32, Yahweh says, I will gather all the nations. I'm going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now we know the place of judgment. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So right there in Joel and Isaiah, we have two prophecies of foretelling Gentile judgment. And in both passages, God invokes the term gathered. Again, I'm going to gather all the nations in Joel 4. In Isaiah 66, I'm going to gather all the nations. Now here's what's fascinating, folks. You don't want to miss this. The word gathered there in Hebrew is kabosh. But in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, they use the same term in Matthew 24, 32. Sonago. What Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24, 32 is the same event being prophesied back in Isaiah 66 and Joel 4. He's going to gather the nations. He's going to gather the Gentiles. Now notice in those two Old Testament passages that Yahweh announces that He is going to judge the Gentiles. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God reveals Himself to His people by His personal name, Yahweh. But one of the difficulties in Bible interpretation is determining which Godhead member is being referred to in a particular passage as Yahweh. You know, we can't just blankly say, well, Yahweh is always the Father. I mean, yes, there are times when Yahweh is the Father. But there's also times when Yahweh is the Son and when Yahweh is the Holy Spirit. So we have three persons in that one Godhead and they each share the same name, Yahweh. Well, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, as students of God's Word, we can be assured of which member of the Godhead is going to judge. You see, in John chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus says, For not even the Father judges anyone. Now let's stop right there for a second. The Father judges no one. That means anytime I'm reading in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures that Yahweh is going to judge, it's not a reference to who? It's not a reference to the Father. In other words, then, well, that leaves who? Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Okay? Continue reading John 5, 22. Not even the Father judges anyone, but... Pump the brakes. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. So anytime you're in the Hebrew Scriptures and you're reading about Yahweh judging, 
Guess who that member of the Godhead is doing the judging? The Son of God, Jesus. That's who judges. Okay? So really, when you go back to Isaiah 66 and Joel 4, you could say, Jesus knows their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations in tongue. They will come and see Jesus' glory. Let's reread Joel 4 32. Jesus will gather all the nations and bring them into the valley of Jehoshaphat. There Jesus will enter into judgment with them on behalf of his people and his inheritance Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. Jesus judges. Any reference in the Hebrew Scriptures to Yahweh judging is a reference to the Son of God. Folks, He's going to judge believers at the judgment seat of Christ. He is going to judge regenerate and unregenerate Jews and Gentiles when He returns after the tribulation. And it is going to be Jesus who is going to judge all the unregenerate at the great white throne judgment. That's Jesus doing that judging there. Because the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Now, after gathering the Gentiles, Jesus will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, this shepherding or the separation of, she of Gentiles is similar to how shepherding is done in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East. Flocks would be made up of sheep and goats. In fact, the Greek term for lamb can be rendered as referring to either sheep or goats. Okay? Well, sheep and goats would be together in the same fold. During feeding times and at night, the shepherd would separate the goats from the sheep. Goats would be gathered into one place. They were very rambunctious. Okay? You know, the sheep are more docile, so you, know, you don't want to feed them at the same time. The goats would be butting the sheep out of the way. They'd be getting the horn and no food. And at night, goats love to be on top of each other to, for heat, for warmth. But sheep, because of all their wool, when they slept, they were spread out so they could keep cool. And so even though you had them in one flock, you couldn't have them eat together and you couldn't have them sleep together. Well, Yahweh declares in Ezekiel 34 verse 15, I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest. So Yahweh is a shepherd. Now, which member of the Godhead are we talking about here? Well, let's see what Jesus said in John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So in Ezekiel 34, Jesus says, I will feed my flock. I will lead them. So here in, again, Ezekiel 34, Yahweh here is referring to Jesus. He, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. Now, all through the scripture, sheep are a picture of believers. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's not good. But we're, we're sheep. Now, sheep have limited vision. Okay? And nobody yet has developed a set of spectacles for sheep. So because sheep have very dim vision, they have to depend upon their hearing for to follow the shepherd. What does Jesus say in John 10 and verse 27? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. So sheep listen for the voice of their shepherd. And that's what we do. We listen for the voice of our shepherd. Now, if sheep represent the believers, who does the goat represent? The unbelievers. You see, in this, in this narrative, the goats are stubborn. More stubborn than sheep. And more often rebel against the shepherd than sheep. In Ezekiel 34 and verse 17, again the shepherd passage, Yahweh prophesies, and we know it's Jesus, As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another. So he's going to judge sheep. And between the rams and the goats. And so what do we have here? We have a fulfillment of Scripture coming at the end of the tribulation, foretold here by Jesus himself, that he is going to separate the Gentiles into two groups. He's going to she 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 yeah. The shepherd is going to separate the sheep, or the believers, from the goats, or the unbelievers. And notice where he places each. This is important. He places the sheep on his right and the goats, or the unbelievers, on his left. Why? 
what's the significance of the right and left? Well, the answer is all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 48. Because in Jewish culture, the right hand is the hand of blessing. In Genesis 48, Jacob is coming to the end of his life. He's preparing to bless Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, in their culture, in the Jewish culture, the eldest son receives the blessing. And he receives the most of the inheritance. So, the one granting the blessing, in this case would be Jacob, would place his right hand upon the eldest child and give him the blessing. Something unusual happens here. Manasseh, the oldest child of Joseph, is stood before his grandfather Jacob. And he's placed at his right hand. Ephraim, the youngest son, is placed at the left. Now Joseph understands culture. Manasseh is the oldest. He should get the blessing. He should inherit the estate. He should inherit all the power. Well, Jacob prepares to give the blessing. He crosses his arms and puts his right hand on the child at his left, the youngest son Ephraim. Joseph, whoa, whoa, Dad, you've made a mistake. I know you're blind, but are you confused? I have to correct this. And Jacob says, no, you don't need to correct it. I know who I'm blessing. I'm blessing the younger grandson instead of the older one. So Ephraim receives the blessing because he was given the right hand. So after the angels assemble all the Gentiles before Jesus, he separates the sheep and the goats, the goats at his left, the sheep at his right. Meaning that the sheep are in the possession to be blessed by Jesus. Listen, if you were on the left side, you weren't getting any blessing. Very much so, you were in a position of condemnation from your vantage point. I got nothing. Setting the unregenerate Gentiles to his left placed them in a position of rejection. Well, the sheep and the goat parable continues with the award of the sheep in Matthew 25, verses 34 to 40. Let's read on. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, this is the sheep, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Naked and clothe you. When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, to the least of them, you did it to me. This is probably one of the most misquoted, misapplied texts in the scriptures. Jesus says, the king will say to those on his right. Okay? So we know he's talking to the sheep. But notice again the word then. Temporal terms are very important in building the chronology of the scriptures. So, immediately after the tribulation, Jesus returns. Okay. 30 days later, gathers the Jews. 45 days later, he gathers the Gentiles. Now that they're gathered, then, so immediately after the gathering, after the separating, he speaks to the sheep, to the regenerate Gentiles. And the first thing he says to the regenerate Gentiles is, come. Come is an invitation to enter his kingdom. It's the same exact term that was used to the bridesmaids back in the ten virgin parable. Come. That was the invitation. They received the invitation to enter Jesus' kingdom, not based on their works, but because they were blessed of the Father. What does it mean to be blessed? The word blessed here is eulogio. We get our word eulogy. Eulogio, it's a term of blessing. It means to experience favor or benefit. And here's what's interesting. You don't want to miss this. This is very important. This verb, blessed, is a perfect passive verb. Which means this. That the blessing was initiated by the Father in the past, but its fulfillment is in the present. In eternity past, God initiated the blessing upon who? All those who repent and believe the gospel. And that's 
being fulfilled in the present as people what? Repent of their sin and believe the gospel. The invitation was inscribed and went forth all the way back in eternity past to bring the regenerated into a relation with himself. And that blessing includes eternal life, the removal of sins, curse, and fellowship with the Lord. Believers, all believers, from every generation are going to enjoy the full blessing of having a relationship with God when they enter into his kingdom. He says, Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The term inherit here, kleronomio, means obtain a possession. Now think about an inheritance. An inheritance is not something you earn. An inheritance is not something you purchase. It is something you freely receive. The blessing of this eternal inheritance was reserved for you and me. It's reserved for all believers in eternity past. But it's not for something you purchase. It's never something you earned. It was something freely given to you. And it's prepared. Hedoimazo means to be prepared ahead of time. Again, we have a perfect passive verb which tells us that God created, God made our inheritance ready in the past. Even though we've yet to receive it. But it's guaranteed. When we're welcomed into his kingdom, we're going to receive that inheritance. And again, he enforces this past idea. Notice it occurred from the foundation of the world. It occurred where? In eternity past. In eternity past, God decreed a plan. And in that plan, he said, this is how I'm going to redeem people. And because he's promised to redeem people, he says, this is what I'm going to do for those I redeem. I'm going to give them eternal inheritance. I'm going to give them eternal life. I'm going to give them a relationship with me. I'm going to bring them into my kingdom and treat them as my own children. And because it's done in the past, because it's done by God, it is guaranteed, it cannot be annulled, it cannot be abrogated. And by the way, I love the book of Matthews, or book of Matthew, because he does something very unique. He connects the dots. You see, the sermons come full circle. The very first sermon Matthew records is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing Jesus says in verse 4 is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And then down in verse 10 of that same sermon, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here in the last recorded sermon of Jesus, He says, He gives assurance that guess what? Believers are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. The sermons come full circle. Now to demonstrate that these Gentiles are genuinely redeemed, Jesus sets forth the evidence. He says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now folks, being hospitable and ministering to the sick and needy reflects the biblical ethics of loving one's neighbors. Okay? You see all of those same things outlined in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 27. Paul adapts this same list in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 and 3 when he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, as those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the same body. Now, let's be clear. Jesus here is not implying that if you do these deeds, you're saved. If that's the case, you know, there's all kinds of people that are saved. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he says, these deeds are evidence proving the genuineness of someone's faith. Anyone who believes, if you believe, friend, that good deeds are going to get you into heaven, you need to read Mark 7, 22 and 23. Jesus says, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? And didn't I cast out demons in your name? And didn't I perform miracles in your name? And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. They did all kinds of quote-unquote good deeds in his name, but he never knew them. They had no relationship. But Jesus' point here is that these good deeds manifest the redemptive work of Jesus in a person's life. If Jesus has redeemed you, there's going to be something different about you. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be different. 
James 2, verse 15 to 17 says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, but you did not give to them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, James says, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. True, genuine faith works. It produces fruit. It produces evidence. 1 John 3 and verse 17, Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Don't tell me you love Jesus if you see a brother or sister in need and just walk right on by. You don't have the love of Jesus. You see, the test of genuineness of a believer's faith is how they minister to the hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and in prison. Now, Jesus reveals the response here of the regenerate Gentiles. They say, Lord, when? When did we do these things to you? They couldn't think of a time when they had done any of these things for Jesus. And look at the king's reply. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Now, these verses have often been used to encourage believers to engage in meeting various social needs. And that's all fine and good, except you can't take this verse and apply it in that situation. There's plenty of other verses that you can use biblically for those situations. But that's not the case here. This is a very limited case. And you're going to see here, it's limited by the statement, these brothers of mine, these Adelphos, these siblings, people of the same family. Now, who are his siblings? Who are the siblings of Jesus in this context? Well, it's certainly not the disciples, okay? Because if, if, if we're talking to Gentiles in the tribulation, the disciples have long been dead and off the scene. The family of Jesus is the Jewish community. The Jewish community. The brethren to whom Jesus refers are Jews. The proof of Gentile salvation is not necessarily how they treat their fellow Gentiles, but the proof of their regeneration was how they treat the Jewish people. Now, folks, redemption is only attained by repentance of sin and faith in the gospel. But one proof, one fruit of redemption is a change of heart towards the Jewish people. And that change of heart demonstrates itself in ministering to them and providing aid to them when possible. And when we minister to God's people, the Jews, we are ministering to Him. So, believer, I challenge you to examine your relationship and attitude towards Jewish people. They shouldn't be the brunt of your joke. That's God's people. How are you ministering to them? How are you meeting their needs? Now you might claim, well, I don't know any Jewish people. Okay. If that's the case, then I challenge you to find a Jewish ministry that's preaching the gospel, providing aid to God's people, and support that ministry. How you treat the Jews is evidence of your regeneration. That's what Jesus says here. Let's go on to the goats. Verses 41 to 46. We're coming to the end of the sermon here, folks. We have the conclusion of the parable with the arraignment of the goats. He's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. Stranger, you didn't invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then we have the same scenario. They said to themselves, Lord... When did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, or in prison, and didn't take care of you? He'll answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The scene shifts from the sheep to the goats on the left. Now, if being on the right is a sign of blessing, then being on the left is a sign of condemnation. To those on the left, he says, Depart from me, accursed ones. That's a pronouncement of judgment. They are accursed. They are kataromai. They are under an invocation of divine judgment. And these are the Gentiles. The unregenerate Gentiles. They have seen God's judgment rain down on the earth. They have seen Jesus descending from heaven in blazing glory. They've been given 75 days to repent and believe the gospel. And when the day of judgment now arrives, they are unprepared. And now because of that, they are accursed. 
He says, depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That eternal fire. Anytime in the Gospels you see the word eternal fire, it's not hell referring to, it's the lake of fire. You see, fire of hell is not eternal. The fire of hell is going to come to an end because hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. We see that in Revelation 20 and verse 14. At the great white throne judgment, everyone in hell is resurrected, judged, and thrown in the lake of fire. Notice who it was created for. God never intended to send one human person to, to the lake of fire. It initially was created for the devil and his angels. Listen, Satan and his angels are not in hell today. They are currently free, roaming the earth, deceiving whom they can deceive. But when we get to that great white throne judgment, they are going to be cast in the lake of fire. And it is a place of eternal fire. The fact that it was created for Satan and his, eternal, and his fallen angels means that there is no hope of redemption from that place. Matthew 25, 41 calls it an eternal fire. It is a fire that is unquenchable, friend. It is an endless torment. No annihilation. You will be there tormented by the flame forever. It is a place in Matthew 25 and verse 30 of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness means it's the farthest from God's light. You can't be more separated from God than being in the lake of fire. You're going to weep and gnash your teeth just, just to demonstrate just how inconsolable the torment of hell is. It is a place where the worm does not die. That worm there is an allusion to the maggots gnawing on the garbage in the valley of Hinnom. But notice here it is your worm. Your worm does not die. That worm is your conscience. It is a gnawing worm. As, as Plumtree, Reverend Plumtree says, well nigh all Christian thinkers have seen in this gnawing worm the anguish of endless remorse, the memory of past sin. You know, anybody that wakes up in the lake of fire is going to be tormented daily, not only physically, but mentally, as every sin they have ever committed replays over and over and over again for all eternity. They're never going to come to the end of that movie strip. Matthew Henry says the reflections and reproaches of the sinner's own conscience are the worm that dies not. It is going to cleave to the damned soul as the worms do the dead body. Pray upon it, never leave it till it's quite devoured. Damned sinners will be to eternity accusing, condemning, and upbraiding themselves with their own follies. That ought to scare everybody. It should be a source of dread to think about a place like the lake of fire. Especially if you're unregenerate. If you leave this life, friend, in an unregenerate state, you are going to one day be cast into that place, the lake of fire. And it's incumbent, therefore, upon all of us to be sure we have repented of our sin and believed the gospel. Well, I've got time. My friend, there is no time. Nobody is guaranteed tomorrow, so you better make the most of today. And the best thing you can do is make sure of your eternal destiny today. These unregenerate Gentiles are cast in the lake of fire because of their unbelief. And here now Jesus presents the evidence of their unbelief. I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and you did nothing. Well, when did that happen? You know, well, I don't remember that. But here's the evidence of their unregenerate state. Unlike the sheep who ministered to the Jewish people, providing aid where possible, these goats did nothing, demonstrating their unregenerate state. Now again, to my brethren, even to the least of my brethren, to the Jewish people, they had no change of heart towards God's people, which meant their heart was still dead in trespass and sin. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, why does the Lord use the Jewish people's treatment as proof of an individual's regenerative state? The answer lies in Genesis 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham three things. I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to sit, give you a seed, I'm going to give you a blessing. And the blessing is going to be that the seed, the promised seed, is going to come as the Messiah, and he is going to redeem all humanity from sin and the lake of fire. But Jesus adds a, a word there in Genesis 12, 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Notice the final statement of Jesus' sermon. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
those who ministered to the Jews, those Gentiles who minister to the Jews, demonstrate their regeneration, and they are blessed by God with eternal life. Those who fail to refuse to, or to minister to them prove their unregenerate state, and they're cursed with eternal punishment. Whereas eternal life is unending life in the presence of God, eternal punishment is an, ending, is an unending life of pain and the lake of fire separated from God. By your fruits you'll know them. We've talked about the fruits before, but we've never talked about this fruit. This is one of those fruits he's looking for in your life. My friend, are you a sheep or are you a goat? You can profess to be a sheep, but mere profession doesn't prove a thing. Indeed, one only becomes a sheep in the Lord's sheepfold if they repent of their sin and believe the gospel. But again, many will make that profession. Lord, Lord. A lot of the goats are saying, Lord, Lord. He says, listen, your profession lacks reality. You demonstrated no fruit, no work, proving the genuineness of your regeneration. You see, we see that genuine re regeneration is demonstrated with a heart for God's people, the Jews. God's chosen people. The person who has no heart for Jewish people has no heart for Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we approach your throne of grace again through the magnificent name, the matchless name of Jesus. And Father, we give you the praise and the glory because we are without excuse. You have laid everything out. The plan you pl planned out in eternity past, the plan that is currently playing out in our midst, Father, you've revealed it to us. You've told us everything we have to need to know. You've told us how to be right with you. You've given us the plan of salvation. We praise you for that. You've shown us what the, what the fruits of that regeneration look like. You've laid that all out for us. Father, you've given us opportunity after opportunity. And I pray if there's someone listening, Lord, who's never taken that time to repent of their sin and believe the gospel, might in the fear of the lake of fire be moved by your spirit to come to that place of repentance and faith. And Father, I pray for each and every one, Lord, who, who claims to be yours, who claims to be one of your children, that Father, they would now examine themselves and look at the fruit in their life. Make sure they're first and foremost this fruit. Because Lord, if there is no fruit, convict them of their sin and bring them to repentance and faith. But Father, maybe they fooled themselves. But Lord, as they examine themselves, if they find that they're, 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 there is a prejudice against the Jewish people, if they find in their, in their heart that there's no love, that they're, that they're doing nothing for your people, and Father God, I pray that you would convict them of sin. And that Father, you might move upon them. That if they're truly regenerated, to begin producing that fruit. Maybe it's just a case, Lord, of where they did not know, but now they do. May they begin to till that field and produce that fruit. But Father, maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's the reality of there is no love because there is no heart for you. Father, I pray that you take that stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. Father, again, I want to thank and praise you for this sermon about the end times. That Lord, you, you, through your Son, you revealed these things to us and you've, you've cleared things up. You've made clear some very important issues about the end times. And you've given a lot of lessons, not only for those people, but for us as well. So Father, let us examine ourselves and let us go forth and make changes where they are necessary so that when your Son comes to call us into your presence, he'll be able to present us as holy and blameless with, uh, without sin before you. And when that day of judgment comes for your church, Lord, I pray that we would have more rewards than loss of rewards. For this we give you praise and the glory and say, Amen.